unholy cow. Philip Ryken claims, yeah, let that sink in. Philip Ryken claims, the story of the golden calf tells us more than what happened. It tells us what happens. Namely, this story tells us what happens when we do what God says not to do. It tells us what happens when we do not trust God to know what he's doing. It tells us what happens when we choose to do things our own way as opposed to God's way. It tells us what happens when we do what is popular instead of what is right. It tells us what happens when we forget what God has done. All these are true and present for teaching in our text this morning. And there is at least one more lesson to be learned from the story of the golden calf. And that will be the focus of this morning's message. Exodus 32 tells us what happens when the priest doesn't preach. Let's pray. Lord, we have just read in Scripture a story that describes in detail how quickly and how easily a people can descend into idolatry. As we think about these words from your Bible, and as we think about the Israelites and Aaron, God, we pray to learn from their example so that history doesn't repeat itself in us. It is easy for us to see their flaws. It is easier to see their flaws than it is to see our own. But in reflecting, God, we see how their flaws are or could become our own. So, Lord, we pray as Christians and as a church for the will to do what you say to do. Pray also for the wisdom to refrain from what you say not to do. Our hope is that our obedience would speak to the love that we have for you, and we confess that our disobedience speaks to our misplaced loves. Loves for people and things that are not of you or not you. Lord, we ask be children who love you well. And we know in your word, you tell us what that looks like, that we would love you with all our hearts and all our minds and all our souls and all our strength. Pray today as members in a body to trust you, Lord, to know what you're doing. Help us to trust that you know what you're doing, even and especially when we do not know what you're doing. Help us, Father, to walk by faith and not sight. Help us not to be the kind of people who demand a sign. Lord, we want to love you when we cannot see you, and we want to believe you when we do not feel you, and we want to lean into you, even as circumstances might lead us to wonder where you are and what you're up to. We pray as your people to be committed to your will. Do things your way. And help us, God, to choose your ways over our ways whenever the two are at odds. Help us to be patient, filled with your spirit, forsaking the urge to make things happen or take matters into our own hands. Let us know the value in waiting. Let us be sure that you are working whenever you make us wait. God, you are working whenever you make us wait. Lord, we pray this morning for the grace and courage to stand firm in our faith. Help us not to fail you by doing what is popular if it is not also what is right. 
spare us, God, from being salt that has lost its saltiness. Forgive us, Father, for every occasion where we choose out of fear to hide the light of your glory. May we not be those who shrink back, but instead be those who are willing to speak up. Speak up for your truth. Even if we fear it may not be welcomed or well received. And finally, Lord, we pray that we would never stop remembering the great deeds you have done on our behalf. We be grateful and willing often to count our blessings. Our ancestors in the faith had very short and selective memories, and we are prone to these ourselves. We could easily take you for granted, take credit for our daily bread. We could, if we are not careful, lose our sense of your great deliverance, how you have lifted us on eagles' wings and brought us to yourself through the atoning death of your only Son and our Savior, Jesus. And forgetting this, we might come to believe that we can somehow save ourselves or that we don't need saving at all or that any old God will do. That's not true because you alone are God. You alone can save and there is none like you. You alone are worthy of the worship you desire. And we pray to be the people counted among the many more that you have so graciously rescued from death and hell who will bring that worship to you. Not just this day, but every day and forever. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to grasp the passage of Scripture in Exodus 32. We need to pick up where the narrative actually leaves off, and that would be at the end of Exodus 24. Last week we were in chapters 25 to 31, patterns and principles for worship, but now we're going back a little bit to Exodus 24 to get this context. This is where Moses has been summoned up the mountain again to meet with God. He, he uh, tells the elders of Israel to wait for him until he comes back. He leaves his brother in charge. And he says that Aaron and her will settle all the disputes that people might have in his absence. And then Moses leaves them. And with his assistant Joshua, he heads up the mountain. And a great cloud covers the mountain for six days. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the cloud. And the scripture says at that time, the glory of the Lord was on the mountain. It looked like a devouring fire. Everybody could see it. And Moses went up into that cloud. And he would be there with God for 40 days and 40 nights and receiving from God the Ten Commandments written in stone along with, as I mentioned, the patterns and principles for worship that we covered last week in chapters 25 to 31. Now, ironically and absolutely tragically, while Moses is on the mountain with God, learning from God how God wants to be worshipped, his people become restless and they insist on worshipping on their own. And Exodus 32 is a story of this ill-conceived, ill-fated worship service. It's a tale of rebellion, of disobedience, of idolatry, and behavior that commentator Tim Chester calls utterly stupid. Apostle Paul would likely confer with that because in Romans chapter 1, he captures the spirit of the golden calf event, describing the sheer folly and the futility of anyone who would exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creation 
rather than the Creator. Like a lot of the texts that we have seen thus far in Exodus, this morning's chapter has many layers. It has a lot to say to us. For our purposes today, we're going to focus on just one aspect, just one slice of the Exodus 32 pie, and that's the role of Moses' brother Aaron. Now, Aaron is a key player in the story, both for what he does and for what he doesn't do. He will become, and in some ways is in training, uh, for the role of high priest of Israel, of spiritual leader. But in case you haven't picked up on it yet, in this episode, Aaron is the priest who doesn't preach. And more than a month since anyone had seen Moses. And folks are getting restless. During his absence, they have been waiting for something. They didn't know exactly what they were even waiting for. Maybe for Moses to come back. Maybe for God to tell them what their next move would be. They were waiting for something to happen. I don't know about you, but I personally find waiting to be difficult. Anybody else? The problem most of us have with waiting, at least I can speak for myself here, is that it feels like a waste of time. It feels like when we're waiting that we're doing nothing. And we have a sense that we should be doing something. And even though today we have God's word, which tells us in many places, it commands us to, to be still and to wait and to know that he is God. We still, we, even with that word, struggle to wait well. We become impatient. We become bored. Anybody who's raised children know that boredom can be a bad thing. Whoever said it can't really trace it to its roots because it's attributed to so many people. But idle hands are the devil's playground. Waiting can provide time for our doubts to grow. And depending on what we're waiting for and depending on our disposition, our wiring, waiting might even make us become desperate because our imaginations can run wild with all sorts of scenarios. For over a month, Israel has been waiting. Now they are frustrated. They gather themselves together around Aaron. Aaron is the man in charge. That phrase that says they gathered themselves together in verse 1 of chapter 32 is the same phrase used in number 16.3, translated there, they assembled themselves together against. It has that uh, idea of opposition. The insinuation is that of a crowd, of a mob that's gathering around a group of people that isn't happy and has come with some demands. And so they say to Aaron, up, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, uh, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. People have been talking in the camp. People are dissatisfied sitting around and doing nothing. They don't want to wait anymore for this Moses. They just don't have any idea what happened to him. Last they saw him, he's disappearing into a cloud, into a, a fiery mountaintop. Maybe he's dead. They don't know. But they convinced themselves that they've had enough. And they need some replacement gods if they're going to continue on their journey. We should note here how quickly these people move on from Moses. They're very much a, a, a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of people. The exact kind of people that we do not want to be, right? The very language that they use to describe Moses is dismissive. As for this Moses, 
This Moses, we don't know what has become of him. Acts 7.39 says they thrust him aside. They threw him over. If there was a bus, they would have thrown him under it. After all he had done, after all he had given, after how faithfully he had led them, the fickle Israelites are more than willing to move on from Moses and with that to move on from his God was to be their God. Now, the people were right to come to Aaron, although they could have been nicer about it, because Aaron had been left in charge. He's supposed to settle the disputes, and surely the demands placed on him to manufacture gods rises to, qualifies as, a matter, to be resolved. Unfortunately, the method of resolution that Aaron adopted, which may in fact be a method that some of you adopt. I don't know you all well enough to know. But his method of resolution was simply to do just what he was told. In other words, he goes along to get along. Whether he knew it was right or wrong, the text doesn't tell us, but he goes along and it seems like he goes along to get along. We find no evidence whatsoever in the text that Aaron challenged the people for this awful, ungodly notion that they were proposing no dialogue, no exhortation, no reminders of the covenant that they just made, no appeals to the allegiances that they had just sworn to, no remembrances of the word of Moses that said, wait here until I return, and certainly no appeal to the very words of the Lord who said, I am the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any idols, and you shall not bow down them or serve them. Now, a spiritual leader has an obligation to speak the truth of God. And yet Aaron says nothing. That deafening silence on his part, while all Israel stands at a crucial juncture, that is, they are choosing right then who they will serve, just might and ought to put us in mind of another occasion in Scripture where God's appointed leader said nothing and willingly partnered in a bad plan. That happened, of course, in the Garden of Eden where the first man, Adam, who along with his wife had access to and dominion over everything, over all creation, enjoyed fellowship with God and unbroken fellowship with God. And then Genesis 3 tells us the story of how it all went wrong. And Eve was deceived by the devil in the form of a serpent to eat fruit from the one tree that God had told them not to eat from. You can eat from all the other trees, but not that one. God had told Adam and Eve that they, if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. And the devil told Eve she surely would not die. Genesis 3.6 says it rather matter-of-factly. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye... And also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he objected. Refused. Reminded her of God's command. Chose to please God rather than himself. Encouraged her to do the same thing. None of that is in there. Gave some to her husband who was with her. He said nothing. He gave some to her husband who was with her and he 
hated. That's known in Scripture as the fall of man. That's the account of how sin entered this whole world. That's the explanation for why this world is so messed up today, why it is so sin-infested today, why things go wrong so often. Adam opened his mouth, but he didn't open his mouth to speak. He opened his mouth to sin. He didn't protect his bride. He didn't stand up for God. Consequently, he fell. And when he fell, we all fell with him. So here in Exodus 32 is the story of another fall. It's the fall of Israel. The stage is set for a new creation of sorts. The promise of God to make a nation is coming to pass. Redeemed from slavery, birthed as it were through the Red Sea, and constituted at Sinai with a ceremony and a covenant, Israel pledges to be obedient to God, and God again is willing to dwell with his people. But in the absence of the physical presence of their leader, Moses, and in the absence of a tangible God, which is what they were used to in the land of their slavery, they did not know how to live by faith. They craft a scheme of blatant disobedience, and they offer their own uh, version of forbidden fruit to Aaron. And instead of confronting and shining the light of God's truth on this fatally flawed plan, what does he do? He capitulates. He keeps quiet. He doesn't preach any more than Adam did. And like Adam, he goes along with it, and they all fall. As far as we can tell, Aaron doesn't even raise an objection. There's certainly uh, a dereliction of duty for the one who was commissioned to settle the disputes of the people in Moses' absence. It's a sin of omission. Because a spiritual leader has an obligation to speak up. And it's a problem when the priest doesn't preach. In Malachi chapter 2, God says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he's a messenger from the Lord. Leadership means speaking up. Priests are called to preach. And guess what? That just doesn't apply only to Adam or to Aaron or to pastors today. It fits also for husbands. It fits also for parents. It fits for people who are in positions of spiritual leadership. And even more broadly, it actually applies to all of us. Because just as God intended to make Israel a kingdom of priests, so the Apostle Peter tells us now that in Christ, every believer is a priest. That the church today is indeed a royal priesthood. And as, as priests, we are given now a task of mediating God to the world and the world to God, of standing in the gap, of interceding, of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. That's our job. That's the job of the church. That's the job of the priests. It is our job now to represent, to speak up for God. Tim Chester, in his commentary, Exodus for You, writes, As Christians, we worry that if we do not compromise, then the culture will not respect us. But the world will not respect us anymore if we change with every cultural fashion. And if we become no different to the surrounding culture, then we've nothing distinctive or worthwhile to say. 
If we simply echo the world, then we offer no alternative. The world has plenty of temples to its idols. There is no call or excuse for making God's church into another one. The crowd gathered around Aaron. It seems that fear of man, what men might do to him, prompts him to do what he knows God has said not to do. He chose in that moment to do what was popular instead of what was right. And if we're honest, most of us can relate to Aaron on this front and this temptation. It is easier, is it not, at times to go along with what we know is wrong rather than to stand seemingly alone for what is right. Aaron is guilty of a sin of omission when he refused to speak up and then he quickly followed it with a sin of commission. It goes from bad to worse. He tells everyone to take off their gold rings, their earrings, give them to him. He receives their gold, melts it down, and with the use of a tool, begins to shape it into an idol. The spiritual leader has an obligation to lead by example. Do not do what God says not to do. But Aaron not only doesn't object to the idea of an idol, he makes one. Well, it's what they told him to do what he did. That's what he did, even though what he was doing would harm his people greatly. Beloved, a good shepherd doesn't want to put his sheep at risk unnecessarily. A good shepherd leads his people where they ought to go, whether they want to go there or not. That's what the staff is for. That's what the crook is for. Right? We got to go. The good shepherd knows his interest is more in pleasing God than pleasing sheep. Or pleasing God than pleasing people. A strong spiritual leader would rather face the disapproval of people than the disapproval of God. But Aaron is weak. And so he leads Israel in a distinct step backwards. He fashions the people's gold into the form of a calf, a bullock, a a male calf nearly grown, the bull, strong and fertile, a very common image for idols in Egypt. And so, prompting one commentator to say it was easier to get Israel out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of Israel. And this is a story, right? An example of what the Proverbs mean when they talk about the fool returning to his folly. Why do I keep doing this thing that I know I'm not supposed to do? What is wrong with me? Talks about the dog returning to its vomit. Talks about the pig, the nice clean pig that finds its way to the mud. At different times in life, we will be tempted to retreat to old habits. To old haunts. We will, for one reason or another... Seek to go back to what we have known. As A.W. Pink astutely observes, man must have an object, and when he turns from the true God, he at once craves a false one. When Aaron finished making the idol, the people declared, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are your gods. What an offense. To Almighty God. We 
We see here how deplorable idolatry is. It attributes to an idol, to an image, to a man-made thing, what God has done. Revisionist history, what that is. Revisionist history. It's not a recent phenomenon, okay? It's always been the way of humanity since the fall of man to not allow the facts to mess up the story. We see why idolatry is so grievous, how utterly wrong it is to attribute to a created thing the work of the Creator. Doesn't God deserve better than that? We note also the plural in this verse. Here are your gods. One calf and the declaration, these are your gods. That's a bit confusing. Some scholars point out that in Hebrew it need not be plural, and so it could be rendered God. It could be just easily rendered, here is your God. But others surmise that the golden calf isn't always uh, just a replacement for Yahweh, but is in addition to the real God, that the people would have the Lord and this image as well. The Lord, they don't know what he's up to. Moses is gone. We kind of need more. We need something different. And that rendering seems plausible because of what happens next. Aaron, when he sees the calf and he sees the people's response to it, builds an altar in front of it. I wonder if that's like a literal fulfillment of that command. You shall have no other gods before me. If Aaron saw what was going on and kind of tried to downplay the whole thing by building an altar for the Lord and saying, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, which could have been what he was up to, or he might just simply be saying, okay, this new image is God, and tomorrow we're going to have a festival to this God. Except that the word translated Lord here is the same name of God revealed in Exodus 3. It seems that Aaron might then have had a compromise in mind. That he might have been thinking about blending the pagan worship of the idol with the worship of the Lord. And you know what? This kind of blending of truth and error is rampant today. Frankly, it's killing the church in America. Our landscape is dotted with churches who began well. Founded on Scripture, intent on glorifying God. But over time, these churches have replaced the Word of God with therapy, with humanism, with the best thoughts of the day. And they hold forth, as the Apostle Paul promised would happen in the end times, they hold forth a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Friends, the, the, the power in our faith, is not in tradition. It is not in the church structures, not in the building, it's not in the liturgy, but in the living and active Word of God, faithfully preached and pressed home by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way any of us will ever change is if we hear the word of God and, it, and are quickened in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Carol's like, I don't know how to turn it off! <laughs> Which is exactly my reaction, by the way. I thought those bells were taken off. <laughs> That's what I thought. You could have faked that. That would have been fine. Would have been like, what's going on in the tech booth? Ringing the bells at 12.53. I mean, I understand. Oh, Amy didn't change my, my number. I thought this was a long sermon. Whew. 
I was just getting ready to wrap it up. Two hours. All right. Back to the text. We can get here. It's always fun that we get distracted in these important points, isn't it? Interesting. The power in the church and the only way any of us are changed by faithfully preaching and hearing the word of God and having it pressed home by the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. The most deadly church in, in, in the world is the one who professes to have vitality, who professes to have life but doesn't have it. And the most dangerous preacher you'll ever listen to is the one who, who uh, brazenly holds forth in the words of, of Haddon Robinson and declares in the name of God what the Holy Spirit never intended to convey. So whether he's mixing a little idolatry into true worship or abandoning God altogether for a golden calf, However we understand that, I think we can at least agree on this. The Israelites have made a mess of things by doing it their own way. You agree with that? So what's happening while Moses is on the mountain getting his instructions for God about worship, what's happening underneath has the appearance actually of worship. Looks like a festival for God. Peace offerings and burnt offerings and a covenant meal. In fact, it's a, it's a, it is a worship service. But it's not a celebration of God. It's a celebration of people. And it's a celebration for people. And we know that particularly because of verse 6, which says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The phrase rose up to play doesn't, doesn't mean everyone jumped up and played hide and seek. A little game of duck, duck, goose going on down here. The NIV translates, got up to indulge in revelry. Well, I don't know what revelry is, but it doesn't sound good. It has sexual overtones. And the insinuation here, the implication of this verse, is that of an orgy. In other words, people aren't worshiping, they're partying. And they're not giving themselves to God, they're giving themselves to each other. And they're not serving God, they're serving themselves which is the inevitable result in some form or another of worship that is unhinged from the word of God. It doesn't always lead to orgies, of course, but worship disconnected from the word inevitably, invariably, most definitely becomes not about God. It becomes about... Worship becomes about us. You go home today, on your way home, as you get home, you'll be talking with people. What do you think? What do you think? I, what do you think about worship today? Well, I think it went a long time. I didn't understand a word that guy said. I don't really like the music. It was warm. We evaluate worship based on what? Based on what we want. Based on what we like. Based on our own preference. We do this all the time. I'm not picking on anybody, right? We do it all the time, and we're asked to do it. We're asked to evaluate all the time. I drove through Kentucky Fried Chicken yesterday because I had to cook for myself because my wife was at a youth thing. So I got my three-piece combo meal, extra crispy. 
without an extra side for a dollar. And there was a sweet little girl checking me out. And she's in training. I thought there was a reason the line was long. <laughs> That's okay. I've learned to wait. And she checked me out and she said, would you like your receipt? And I said, no, thanks. I don't need your receipt. Her train, trainer leaned in and said, you know, you might want to tell them right up front about getting a free chicken sandwich if they fill out the survey that's included on the receipt. I don't really like chicken sandwiches. It didn't appeal to me. So that wasn't going to change anything until the trainer said, and you might get $30. Not me, her. So she said, would you like your receipt? And I said, why would I take a receipt? She said, because you could win a chicken sandwich. I said, and what would you get? She said, I could get $30. I said, well, give me that receipt. And I went home and I sat down in front of my computer and I type in kfcsurvey.com and pop it comes. I'm like, oh, it's going to take longer than I thought. But I went through that whole doggone thing and I evaluated my experience and I told everybody in KFC Cyber World how wonderful Mackenzie, the new cashier, did. And I hope she gets 30 bucks. And that's a long story for me to say that we are constantly evaluating things and we are constantly being asked to evaluate things. So it's natural for us to do that. It becomes a bit problematic, though, when that inclination seeps its way into the church. And we start to evaluate everything that's going on in the church, not by the standards that the Lord lays out, by what's going on in our own minds and hearts, what we think ought to be happening, what we like and what we prefer. There is a story. I don't believe it could be true. Mine was true, but this isn't. But it's still kind of funny, and it might have happened, of, of a family that went to church. And they visited this church, and on the way home, in the car ride home, mom and dad were a bit critical of what was happening at the service. Didn't care for the sermon, and it was a little bit long, and the music wasn't to their liking, and somebody wasn't dressed exactly right, and on they went, complaining and criticizing the service, when all of a sudden, from the back seat, pipes in the little fellow who'd been observing it all, and said, yeah. But you got to admit, it wasn't a bad show for a dollar. <laughs> Which is kind of like us in worship. We don't have to put anything in to speak of, but we're eager to talk about what, whether it met our needs and how we liked it. And, and again, it becomes all about us. But you understand that in the Garden of Eden, when, when mankind fell... God was pushed out of the center and replaced with us. And every time we begin with us, which is just natural now, we will always come into some degree of disorder. Because we're meant to orient around God and not ourselves. So there will always be disorder when we start with ourselves, as the Israelites did here with the golden calf. 
when they distorted worship. Now, Tony Morita talks about this in his commentary on Exodus. He says, today there's a whole culture that reflects this story. We want to do away with what the scripture says about worship and do it our way. As a result, the attenders are mere consumers of worship, and they are led by Aaron-like individuals who pander to the people. And that is what is predicted of the church in the, in the final days, that it will consist of people who draw near in worship not to learn, but to be affirmed. Not to hear something new, but hoping to hear that what they believe and want to be true is indeed true. But Paul says that in the last times, difficult times will come. Terrible times. Horrific times. When people will not listen to sound doctrine, but with itching ears, will heap unto themselves preachers who will tell them what they want to hear and will do what they want them to do, which is just what Aaron did, which is the awful mistake that he made. He didn't speak up when he was supposed to speak up, and he did what he knew God did not want him to do. By contrast to that kind of worship that is populated with consumers and Aaron-like panderers in the pulpit, Tony Marita says, by contrast, God's way of worship puts the gospel on display. That's what our job is. Priests, preachers, church members in worship put the gospel on display. To continuously exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. To teach that he is the only way of salvation. That he is the only hope that we can have. That he gave himself a sacrifice for the sins of humanity. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Would have their sins washed away. Would be completely forgiven. Would find their way to heaven. The good news, the gospel on display. Beloved, that's our job. That's the business we are to be about. And that, my friends, is what we're about to do right now in the observance of communion. The communion is the gospel on display, right? The bread represents the body of Jesus. From the cross, the contents of the cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed on that cross, blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This is the gospel on display right here on this table. This is a, a commemoration of the work of the great high priest, not Aaron, <laughs> but Jesus. Jesus, uh, a new and a better Aaron. Uh -huh. Jesus, who when he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan to worship another, said it is written. You can't worship another. You shall worship God. Jesus knew a better Israel. Jesus, the one who got it right for us. When we can't get it right. And we don't. He did. And that's what this is about. If you are visiting with us this morning, and Jesus Christ is your Savior, feel free to partake in the cup and the bread. If you're visiting with us this morning and you're not sure of that, then feel free to let it go by. It's 
okay. Not a problem. You can observe this ritual, which to some is so familiar and so precious, and to others is so brand new, and we have no idea what it even means. It's okay to let it go. But watch the family of God at work, remembering what Jesus has done. Father, we ask you to prepare us now for this service. We ask you, Father, to help us to examine ourselves as you have instructed us to do. Pray, Lord, somehow through the study of Scripture this morning that the meaning of this ritual would be enhanced, would be refreshed in our minds as we ponder you, great high priest who succeeded where everyone else failed.